I'll be reading from Matthew 2, 1 through 23, from the English Standard Version. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you find him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced excitingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that, and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's holy word. How do we approach Jesus? How should we approach him? Whether, whether you are a maturing Christian and you are, you're hoping to grow in your faith with Jesus, 
or whether you are a newcomer to Christianity and you're just trying to figure out who Jesus really is, how should we approach Jesus of Nazareth? We're going to conclude our Advent series uh, today, uh, since we couldn't conclude it last week. We've been focusing throughout Advent season on Christmas carols uh, that many of you have been singing for most of your lives, and we've been trying to understand the deep Christian themes and biblical messages that are, that are uh, infused into those Christmas carols. So this Advent, we're going to conclude with We Three Kings. And it was, it was written by, it was published by John Hopkins. Yeah, it was published by John Hopkins in the 1850s. He was a writer and a pastor from Pennsylvania. Now, uh, according to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew's gospel, neither were they kings, nor were there three of them. Uh, I, I think the tradition of saying we three kings, it goes back many hundreds of years, really comes from the idea that there were actually three gifts. Regardless of how many people came uh, to the stable uh, or came to visit the child uh, many years ago, we know that whether there were two of them or ten of them, they brought three gifts. And so the, the concept of we three kings, it really comes from the idea that there were three gifts, as Mas Matthew's gospel represents it. Now, they were magi. The Greek New Testament word is magi. It's the same word that appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 2. The word magi, we saw it in Daniel. Uh, think, remember King Nebuchadnezzar's officials right, who were asked to interpret his dreams for him in Daniel's day. They were, also, they were magi as well. This is about you know, four or 500 years after that. And here we see magi again. Now, who were they? Well, in the ancient world, magi were, they were wise men. They were, they were astrologers. They were magicians. They were uh, sorcerers. That's, that's how they were regarded. Really, they were advisors. They were advisors to the king. Uh, think, of, think of the American president's cabinet. Okay? The president's top advisors. Well, if you were a king in Persia or Babylon, and that's where many scholars think these guys were coming from, uh, you would have advisors, and those advisors were magi. Now, we think maybe the magi came from Babylon or from Persia because uh, there were still Jews living in that part of the world uh, from the great exile that took place uh, almost 600 years before, when the people of Judah were captured by the Babylonians and, and uh, deported uh, to Babylon, and they stayed, and they were there during the Persians' reign. It's possible that Daniel, who was not only a great prophet, but Daniel became a great influencer and advisor uh, to the kings hundreds of years before. It's possible that Daniel's influence and Daniel's teachings stuck. Uh, so because of a Hebrew influence in that part of the world, uh, it makes sense that these magi, who Matthew tells us came from the east, were, were watching the skies. And they responded to the celestial sign that they saw. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us whether the star that they saw was miraculous. Could have been. The ancients had no problem with miracles. If, if you believe in a God that's big enough to create all of this, you should have no problem with miracles. Uh, think of the fire cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness 
uh, in the time of the Exodus. Maybe it was a miraculous appearance. Uh, maybe it was astronomy. You know, scholars believe Jesus was born around 6 or 7 B.C. In 7 B.C., there was a... Now, I'm not an astronomer, so some of you are going to understand this far better than I would. But it's, in 7 B.C., there was a very rare conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn in the sky, in the northern hemisphere. Uh, it would be extremely bright and extremely noticeable. Maybe that's what they saw. Maybe that's what they were following. Matthew doesn't really go into the details. Whatever it was, whether it was scientific or whether it was miraculous, the Magi responded to what they saw in the sky. And they traveled very far and they made their way to Judah and they found Jesus. He was probably about two years old by the time they, they got there. And these scholars, these dignitaries from the east came and they brought the child Jesus three gifts. And it's the gifts that give us insight to the first question I asked you, which is how should we approach Jesus Christ? The gifts give us a lot of insight. Actually, these gifts and Advent itself teaches us how to approach Jesus. Now, why did they bring gold? Uh, gold is a common commodity for us Americans. It's hanging around your necks and maybe around your fingers. Uh, in the, for the ancients, gold was a kingly gift. It was a gift for kings. It symbolized royalty. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, we sang. Gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Uh, gold was a gift for kings. As the Magi approached Jerusalem, they asked the officials in Jerusalem, they asked the bigwigs in Jerusalem, where's the person that was to be born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. We've come to find him. They thought Jesus was a king. The New Testament is very clear about Jesus' status. From the beginning to the end of the New Testament, again and again, you see that Jesus is a king. The New Testament ends with the idea in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus was called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I took an art class in college, and you, some art historians will tell you that early Christianity didn't regard Jesus as a king, just as a shepherd, just as a humble teacher, but as Christianity was more and more influenced by Roman culture over the first few centuries, Jesus became in Roman art more imperial and more majestic and more emperor-like. But he, he really wasn't, Christians didn't regard him as a king in the beginning. Well, it's true that in early Christian art, the themes become more and more Roman as, as the art progresses in the first few hundred years. But if you read the New Testament, Jesus is a king from the very beginning. From the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, in his genealogy, Jesus is a king, a humble king born in a stable, but a king nonetheless. As a matter of fact, these foreign Gentiles who weren't Jews at all come and acknowledge him as a king. From the very beginning, even foreign Gentiles regarded this child as a king. So the gold teaches us that Jesus is worthy of our submission. The gold shows us that Jesus is worthy of our service because he's a king. But they also brought incense, didn't they? They brought frankincense. 
Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising. Voices raising. Worship him. God on high. We sang. In the Old Testament, as you read through, you know, this wasn't just in ancient Israel, this is everywhere, that incense is burned up in religious worship practices. I'm not going to keep saying frankincense. It just takes too long for me to say it. I'll just say incense. Okay. When you read the Old Testament, the priests went into the temple courts and then into the holy place and they burnt up incense to God. And it was fragrant. You could smell it. And the incense burned up to God. It was a symbol of fellowship with God. It was a symbol of thanksgiving and appreciation and friendship to the creator. And in a way, that, that's what the, what the priestly office was always about in the Old Testament. The priests, as a job, as a calling, they were intercess- intercessors. They were mediators. The priests would, would functionally establish a relationship between a holy God and sinful people. And, and, and the priests bringing incense and burning infant, incense that, that just sifted up in a beautiful aroma into the heavens. It, it was a sign of fellowship with God. And the priests mediated that. The priests made that happen between people and their creator. And so in the hymn, you hear them worshiping God, worshiping God on high. Why worship Jesus? Well, Jesus is seen as both God and high priest. Um, if, you, if you read the book of Hebrews, actually, I, I should have moved further on. There we go. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about Jesus as a great high priest, like no high priest, like no priest that ever came along before him. Why was Jesus so unique? Here's why. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. See, the priests were sinners, and and they had to offer up incense on behalf of people who were sinners just like they were. But the New Testament says Jesus was a different kind of priest. He came and he was sinless. He was unstained. And yet he came and he he didn't offer up incense. He offered up himself. His whole life, everything he did, everything he said from from the manger and the stable all the way to the cross on which he died and, and to the tomb that he came out of alive after that until he ascended back into heaven at the right hand of his heavenly father. All of that was one big incense burning. All of who Jesus was and what he did, it was, it was one fellowship offering up to God, one thankful offering from a perfect human being up to God the creator. Jesus did it perfectly. He did it with his life. And not only was Jesus a perfect priest, but Hebrews chapter 7 tells us he's exalted above the heavens. You don't worship priests, right? They work for you, but you don't worship them. But Jesus is worthy of worship because he's God. He's a priest, but he, he, serves, he serves priestly as God. So not only is he unstained by sin, 
because he doesn't have any sin, but he's exalted. So he's worthy of our worship because he himself was the perfect worshiper. You kind of have both themes. Jesus is God and Jesus is great high priest in the carol, We Three Kings. So Jesus is not only worthy of our service and our honor as a king, but he's worthy of our worship. As a great high priest who did what no other human being could do, give us access once for all into the presence and relationship with a holy God. So he's worthy of our worship as well. Now, incense was offered for fellowship in the ancient temple, but incense was never never offered up for sin. What was offered for sin? Blood was offered for sin. The blood of an unblemished ant. There was an, there was an altar of incense in the holy place in the ancient tabernacle. But outside in the court, there was another altar. It was, it was, the, it was the, burnt, the brazen altar where unblemished animals were sacrificed as a sin offering to a perfect God. The reason the Jews were allowed to enter into the temple courts and offer up incense in fellowship with God was because at the entrance to the temple was a, was, a, was a sin altar. Once their sins were cleansed by the blood of an innocent animal, they now had access into the fellowship of God. And this really sheds light on why there's a third gift and why the third gift is myrrh. Myrrh is mine. Its bitter perfume breathes the life of gathering gloom, sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, Sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Myrrh was a bitter anesthetic. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that when Jesus was hanging on the cross suffering, 30-some-odd years after this, by the, the Roman soldiers offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh was, it was bitter, but it was, it was an anesthetic, so it could dull the pain. Now, Jesus didn't take it, but you may remember myrrh from that experience. Myrrh was also used widely in the ancient world as an embalming agent. You would spend a lot of money on a lot of myrrh uh, to, em- to embalm a body before you buried the body, put it in, the, in a tomb. Can you, and, and so these magi bring Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh. King, priest, but what's the myrrh about? Can you imagine uh, showing up at a baby's birthday party or two-year-old's birthday party and and handing the two-year-old a casket as a birthday present? That's basically what they're doing. The myrrh foreshadows Jesus' role as a suffering servant, a sin offering. The sacrifice himself at, at, at the entrance of the temple, making it possible for human beings, once sin is removed, to have fellowship with God. So Jesus is worthy of our, not only of our service and honor as a king, not only worthy of our worship as a great high priest who is God, but he's worthy, get this, of our love. Why is he worthy of our love? Because he is a love-motivated savior who saves us and gives his own body and gave his own life because of love. Jesus told the apostles, his good friends in John chapter 15, the night before he died, he said to them, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. This is very personal now, isn't it? This is not just about religion now. 
This is personal. How, how, I've asked myself this question. How did the Magi know to bring myrrh? I mean, gold, yeah. A king, sure, bring gold. Frankincense, uh, that, that's interesting. I, I think they're picking up on Isaiah chapter 60 there. If they were, if they were influenced by Daniel... And if they were influenced by a post-exilic Jewish presence in that part of the world, I can understand gold and I can understand frankincense. But myrrh? How did they know to bring myrrh? Did they even know what they were doing when they decided to bring myrrh? Maybe they did. Maybe they were aware of Old Testament passages in, in, in the Jewish scriptures like Isaiah 53. Where the suffering servant of the Lord who was to come, when, when, when Isaiah was talking about the coming suffering servant said, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Or maybe passages like Psalm 22, where, where the Messiah talks about being abandoned and suffering, uh, where the Messiah says, you lay me in the dust of death. Maybe they were aware of passages like that. I don't know why they brought myrrh, but they brought it because we need to really consider the gift itself. Um, Because we need to look at phrases like king and God and sacrifice and understand what they mean, the meaning of those gifts. I think the point is, whether they completely knew what they were doing, or not. The Magi responded appropriately to Jesus. They approached him in the right way as king and God and sacrifice. I want to ask you, do you respond to Jesus appropriately or inappropriately? Two great examples of inappropriate response to Jesus of Nazareth are seen right in Matthew chapter 2. Herod and the rest of the Jewish leaders. Right? The Magi show up. I, you imagine you're a little, you're a little king from a podunk corner, corner. You're a puppet king from a podunk corner of the Roman Empire. Right? Uh, you're ruthless. Uh, read about Herod. He was read in history books. He was a ruthless guy. He was a puny little nasty king. Um, and imagine foreign dignitaries show up. And say to you, hey, where's, where's the king of Israel? We heard he was born. We want to worship him. We have gifts for him. <laughs> how, how would you feel? Uh, they, asked, they, asked the clerk, they asked the religious establishment of Jerusalem at the time as well. Who don't seem that interested in finding the child, right? They say, they say oh, the, the, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But they don't go looking with the Magi. They don't see, the, the religious establishment doesn't seem interested at all. In searching out the child. Herod wants to kill the child. Wherever he is. And here you have two examples. Of how to respond to Jesus Christ. Inappropriately. First there's Herod. And sometimes we respond to Jesus. Like Herod did. We respond to Jesus. In radical opposition. We look at Jesus. And all that he represents. And we say he is a threat. To my little kingdom. He is a threat to me ruling my house or ruling my family or ruling my job or ruling my pleasure or my leisure or my money or my mind in my own way. I am the king of my own life and I am going to radically oppose anybody who threatens my own lordship. Do you approach Jesus that way as a threat 
to ruling your own little life? Herod did. Some of us, uh, like the Jewish clergy, uh, we, we don't oppose Jesus in such, such an outward way, such an obvious way. Uh, we, we reject Jesus in a subtle way, kind of in a backhanded way. Religious leaders answer the question, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but they don't pursue him like the Magi did. And that's how we are sometimes with Jesus. We just don't pursue him. We, we remain uh, pleasantly ignorant of him. We remain apathetic. We just keep him at a distance. We're, we're content with our lives the way they are. We're content with our traditions. Maybe we're content with our sense of what our religion is. We're content with our way of life or our status in the world or in our community. We think, well, we, that Jesus guy, nah, I, I'm not even going to investigate him because I don't need anything like that. I don't need anybody like that. What we're really saying when we even, even gently keep Jesus at a distance, what we're really saying is I, I, I don't need a king to lead me. I don't need a mediator to represent me. And I don't need a savior to love me. But as it turns out, the Magi were in fact wise. Maybe they weren't kings. Maybe there were more than three of them. Whatever the situation is, they were apparently wise. Because Matthew illustrates in how they behaved throughout their journey and their quest. That that the Magi were eager to find Jesus. They were inquisitive. They asked They didn't assume they knew everything as foreign dignitaries. Not only did they ask, they were persistent in their questions and in their search. And they were teachable. The Magi were teachable. The goal of their quest, uh, Pastor James Boyce said years ago, the goal of their quest was not mere knowledge. These are advisors of kings. These are scholars and dignitaries. The goal of their quest wasn't more knowledge. It was worship. They said, we've come to worship this king that was born. And and then Matthew tells us when they found the child, they worshipped him. They didn't just bring him gifts. They worshipped him. And, And the Magi became the fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet had said. Almost 700 years before, we read it. Isaiah chapter 6, we read it together this morning. And nations shall come to your light. Well, the Jews thought that was about Jerusalem and their nation. Turns out it was about Jesus. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Maybe that's where the kind of idea that they were kings comes from. I don't know. Kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Do you know when you've finally begun to understand Jesus? You ever ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Am I a faithful follower of Jesus? Or how do I know I am? How do I know I really am a Christian? How do I know I have God's spirit? How do I know I'm forgiven? If, if I stood in the presence of God, right, we're not guaranteed a single day of our lives. If I die tomorrow and I stand in God's presence and Jesus is there, will Jesus speak for me? Will Jesus intercede for me in that moment? Or will he say, I never knew you, I'm sorry. How, how, how do I know? How do I know if I'm a Christian? 
And Jesus will acknowledge that I belong to him. You ask those questions? I hope you do from time to time. Well, I want to encourage you. Here's how you know that you've finally begun to understand Jesus. You want to worship him. Do you want to worship him? Do you want to offer to Jesus the best that you have? I know we're not perfect. but, But when you think of Jesus, do you want to love him? Do you want to serve him? Do you want to give him the deepest places of your heart? That's what worship really is. It's, it's, it's when you really give your heart to something or to somebody. You've begun to really understand who Jesus is when you want to love him and you want to worship him. I think the Magi teach us a lot. We read from Philippians 2 today that Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, we we see in the Bible that one way or another, each of us will have to come to terms with Jesus' kingship and his lordship. Even if we reject him now in this life, a, a time is going to come where we will each have to acknowledge that Jesus is king, that he was the perfect priestly sacrifice, and that he is a savior who died for those that he loves. Don't wait until you have to admit it reluctantly. Admit it now. Admit that there is no one like Jesus. And he deserves your respect. And he deserves your worship. And he even invites you to give him your love. There's no joy in serving a king or a leader who isn't trustworthy, right? We're Americans. We don't have a king, but we have leaders, there's no joy in serving a leader who isn't trustworthy. Yeah? Yeah. There's also no motivation to worship a mediator who doesn't speak for you. Right? Do you get the warm fuzzies with somebody who should be representing you but doesn't represent you well? Right? No. Um, there's really even no hope in loving a man who died and stayed in the grave. There's no hope in loving somebody who stays in the grave. But Jesus is none of those things. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Advent encourages us to approach Jesus in the right way. And I hope that you will look to Jesus in 2017 as your king. And look to him as your God. And look to him as your sacrifice. Your sacrifice. Your substitute on that cross. And worship him. Serve him. Worship him. And love him. And if you know you can't do that, I encourage you to ask God to give you what the Magi had. Make you teachable. Maybe that's what you need. Teachability. Start there. Let's pray.
Father, we, we praise you for giving us the space to reflect on these carols uh, over the last month. They are rich, and, and we praise you and thank you for uh, the people who, who penned uh, those, those old tunes. Uh, thank you for their insight. Uh, thank you for their gift of worship. Uh, and, and we are benefiting, benefiting from it even today. Uh, Father, we ask as we close this Advent season, uh, reflecting on the gifts of the Magi, that you would allow us, by your grace and by your truth, to approach your Son as King and God and sacrifice. We praise you for our Lord Jesus. We praise you for his love. and We praise you for his majesty and for his glory and for his power. We're going to put our trust in him this year. We're going to hope in him and be content with who he is and who he makes us. Amen.